Hi everyone, I'm Steven Reisner, and this is Madness, where psychology and capitalism collide. I'm crazy for feeling so lonely. I'm speaking to you today from rural southwestern France, specifically the Charente Maritime, which is about an hour north of Bordeaux. I spend about six months out of the year here in rural France, and today I will uh, be drawing from some of what I've learned about the culture of this area to help me understand the topic which I want to address which is across the channel and what is going on in Great Britain. Doing a job of which you're handsomely paid. I have to say, Mr. Speaker, I've never heard such humbug in all my life. Uh, I'm sure you've heard that Great Britain is currently facing a constitutional crisis. But you might not have heard that Great Britain doesn't actually have a written constitution. For Americans, the idea that there is a constitutional crisis, even though there is no written constitution, it sounds like madness. But I'm going to make the case that the British constitution, which doesn't actually exist, appears to be holding up a whole lot better than the American Constitution, which does exist. I think that if we're going to understand what's going on in Britain and, by contrast, what is happening to the American Constitution currently, we would do well to go back a couple of thousand years to the origins of philosophical debate and take a look at what Socrates had to say about uh, written tradition and unwritten tradition. Now, Socrates uh, is known for refusing to write down his ideas and thoughts. And we basically know what Socrates believed because of the writings of his disciple Plato, who wrote the dialogues of Socrates um, and apparently was fairly true to Socrates' words and ideas. Socrates refused to write his thoughts down First of all, because he was afraid that they would be used against him. But more profoundly, he had questions about what happens when you commit ideas to writing. And uh, we find Socrates' argument in Plato's Phaedrus, which is a series of dialogues uh, between Socrates and his friend Phaedrus on many topics, mostly about madness, Socrates believed that madness was a kind of gift from the gods. Uh, in fact, the expression that we use now is divine madness. I will have a lot more to say about the gift of madness in future episodes. But for today, I want to stick with 
what Socrates had to say about writing and about writing things down. Socrates basically made the case that people think that if you write things down, it will improve memory. But for Socrates, actually, writing things down permitted forgetfulness. It was a deferring of responsibility to the written word. Um, to uh, quote the Phaedrus, Socrates says that writing will provide a forgetfulness in the souls of those who learn at the expense of memory, since they do not remind themselves by themselves internally, but because of a dependence on writing, they are reminded externally by a foreign impression. So what Socrates is basically saying is that once something is written down, it becomes its own authority, and one doesn't appeal anymore to reason or values or understanding or what he would call the soul, the sort of the divine internal sense of good and right, but rather that people begin to look for the written word, which is in fact an image of the soul, of true memory and true learning. So uh, what Socrates is basically arguing is that there's a kind of laziness in the transmission of ideas put to writing. I don't think that we can conclude from this that nothing should be put to writing, but I think what Socrates is saying is that we have a great responsibility not to simply respect the word as an authority, but the argumentation, the logic, the quest for goodness that is behind what we put to writing. And it's reminiscent of the question of written tradition and an oral tradition, even if you take the Jewish tradition of the written law as opposed to the oral law. So in equally ancient Jewish tradition, maybe more ancient Jewish tradition, there is the writings in the first five books of the Bible. And in those first five books are what is called the written law. Jewish scholars and religious scholars and rabbis from time immemorial have argued that alongside the written law was also the oral law. And what is the oral law? The oral law is the interpretation of the written law. And there's thousands of years of history of interpretation of the law in the Jewish tradition. Uh, the, the most obvious example is the question of an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Literally, it would be taken to mean that if somebody you know, causes you to lose your eye, that person should, have, should lose their eye etc., etc. But the interpretation from the very beginning is no, the compensation for the loss of an eye should be equal to what that 
means and judges should determine what that compensation should be. So already the idea is not the literal interpretation, but the value underneath the interpretation. And in in the tradition you have, you know, the majority opinions and the minority opinions, and these change over time. And of course the whole oral tradition goes way beyond Judeo-Christian history and includes oral traditions uh, in Hinduism and Buddhism and Native Americans. I mean, I think every culture teaches their value system through storytelling, through the myths and tales that exemplify a certain way of living and a certain value system that underlies the code of living. So that people in general know the rules They know that there are laws, but there is also a responsibility to know what the laws are about, why the laws exist, what the value system is behind the laws. So what I am trying to argue today is that sometimes the written law can have a kind of a tyranny that the unwritten law does not. And in fact, the written law can sometimes be abused for reasons of power where the unwritten law tends to reflect the value systems and are less likely to be abused in the same way. And I'm going to bring it right down for the moment, to my daily experience here in rural France. One of the things that an American notices immediately in rural France are the roads. It's very rare to find a traffic light in rural France. In fact, the only traffic lights that I have found in the small towns and villages in this area are when uh, streets are so narrow that only one car can go through. And so there they have a traffic light allowing cars to go one direction uh, and cars to come in the other direction without hitting each other because it has to be a one-way road if the road is slightly larger than one way, something else happens, which is that the drivers make eye contact and one driver will pull over and let the other driver pass. And there are traditional rules for that about whether you're on the right or the left, but the most important thing is eye contact and respect and you wave when the person passes the French equivalent of an American thumbs up. And this has been ritualized in the roundabout, what we in America call the traffic circle. Throughout rural France, what you have instead of traffic lights, instead of stop signs, four-way stop signs, two-way stop signs, whatever, what you have most frequently are roundabouts, uh, traffic circles, where there are rules. You have to, the person who has entered the traffic circle first 
um, has the right of way. But in order to see whether the person who's coming into the traffic circle uh, is coming past you or exiting before you, you really need to be sensitive to the nuances of the other driver. I mean, it's nice when they signal that would be best, but in small traffic circles, people tend not to signal. Um, but you make eye contact, you tell by the speed and direction of the car, and there's a kind of cultural knowledge and respect for one another that you develop when you reach a traffic circle. And it turns out that traffic circles are so much safer than stoplights and stop signs. They've done research in America and they have found that roundabouts have a third fewer accidents altogether. They have uh, three quarters fewer accidents with injuries and 90% fewer fatalities than stoplights or stop signs. So in Great Britain, roundabouts are very popular. And I think that there is something about the British sense of themselves as holding up certain kinds of etiquette, tradition, and values that make traffic circles or roundabouts popular in Britain. There's a uh, British Roundabout Appreciation Society, and the president of the, the UK uh, Appreciation Society, uh, Kevin Bareford, uh, has put it this way, and I, I love this quote. He says, traffic lights are so fascist and dictatorial, telling you when to stop and when to go. Roundabouts, on the other hand, are quintessentially English and democratic in their etiquette. Now, I see a direct line between the democratic process of roundabouts and the lack of a written constitution uh, in British law and parliamentary procedures versus stoplights and stop signs throughout America, the written constitution and the dilemma of where we stand now uh, in America and in Britain. And I'm going to talk about, you know, what I think, where I think the constitutional crisis ought to be in a moment, but I want to turn to a psychological understanding of the difference between the dictatorial traffic lights and the democratic roundabouts and think psychologically about what Socrates may have been talking about. So I want to talk a little bit about Freud's theory of the superego. We, we all know that when we think of Freud, we think of the id, the ego, and the superego. And the whole idea in uh, the way most people think about Freud is that the id is our rampant desire. Uh, it has no rules. It simply wants pleasure and satisfaction. Um, the superego are the prohibitions, uh, the moralistic prohibitions. Thou shalt not uh, run a red light, as it says in the Bible. 
uh, well, I mean, really, the commandments are very superego in their tone. Thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not steal. Even the thou shalt's are superego-like. Thou shalt, you know, obey God and not take the Lord's name in vain and all of those things. They're a set of rules determined by an authority figure. And, and then there's the ego, which, according to most people's view of Freudian psychology, has to mediate between the demands of the id and the restrictions of the superego. And it is true that you can read Freud's theory and find that there. I remember when I underwent my personal analysis with the analyst uh, Martin Bergman, one of my great mentors. When you walk into Martin's office, there was this famous uh, lithograph of a portrait of Freud, and I always thought that it was extremely stern. And uh, some days it seemed more stern to me than other days, which Martin liked to analyze why I was you know, feeling guilty or afraid or whatever. But um, the interesting thing for me is that Martin himself, as an analyst, was not stern in this Freudian way. And, you know, he would, when, when he wasn't happy with something that I described that I had done, what Martin would say to me is, he would sigh as if he was sad by this fact, and he would say, you know, that wasn't you at your best. And this introduced a way of thinking about you know, my wishes, my desires, my life in society, that wasn't about the authoritative rules. This introduced this idea of what is me at my best? Meaning, what are the values that I aspire to? And in going back and reading Freud and reading psychoanalytic theory, I would say that what Martin was trying to teach me was that, okay, yes, there are these rules of right and wrong, thou shalt, thou shalt not. But at the same time, and perhaps more important, there is what Freud actually called the ego ideal, the ideal self that one aspires, the, the, the best self. And so this ego ideal represents a value system that we are trying to aspire to. It's not about punishment. It's kind of much more about disappointment. It's about, uh, you know, living by a code that we can align with. And that, I think, is true of society as well. And so when the members of parliament are showing a lack of confidence in their prime minister, what they are basically saying is not that that prime minister violated the words of the Constitution, but the spirit of the Constitution. That that prime minister is violating the values that have been codified over centuries in the, the laws and traditions, but that don't have to be written down because we constantly have to be reminded of what the values underlying our Constitution are. Socrates put it this way. He said, the living word of knowledge has a soul. The written word is no more than an image 
of the soul of the living word, the spoken word, the taught word, the interrogated word of knowledge. So what is happening in Britain is not chaos. It's an eruption of the soul of the British Constitution, written or unwritten. And the question that is probably the most important question of our time right now is why isn't the same thing happening in the United States of America? Why aren't we erupting in the face of an executive that manipulates all the branches of government that are supposed to put a check on that power, manipulates them, the judiciary, the Senate, the military, the Border Patrol, even the National Weather Service. How is it that he has transformed them into instruments of his power? And how is it that there is no eruption stopping him? Socrates was put to death because he believed that knowledge and truth and profound values have to be a check on power. He believed that sometimes madness, a mad eruption of the truth, is necessary in times of crisis to confront power that manipulates language and manipulates words and manipulates our constitution for its own ends. What we have in America instead of truth confronting power and truth dominating power, we have power dominating truth, altering truth with a sharpie. What our country needs now is more of what happened in Britain's parliament. We need a chaotic eruption of the truth confronting the manipulation of our constitution by this president and his government. This is Stephen Reisner. This has been Madness, where psychology and capitalism collide. That's a union and a That's a union and a